Hello and welcome back to the Plutarch Podcast. I'm Tom Cox, your host from Grammaticus.co. And today we're doing one of my favorite all-time lives to teach, the ever-vain flip-flopper Alcibiades. And I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do when I usually teach him because, man, he is fascinating. Like the way a train wreck is fascinating. You just can't take your eyes away. So, Alcibiades, how do we even begin to describe you? Well, let's describe him as a vain traitor. He fights for Athens, Sparta, Persia, Athens, again, Thrace, sort of, Persia, sort of. He's imprisoned by more than one of these people, which I think proves in the end that he really only fought for himself. But let's dive right in. Before we do, I want to thank you for the download. If you're getting anything out of these lives, if they're helping your own life, your own teaching life, your own living life, then drop me a rating or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. But in the meantime, let's get down to it. Alcibiades, we're in the middle. All right, we just finished Pericles and Nicias. We're in the middle, smack in the middle of this crazy long war called the Peloponnesian War. And Nicias at least gave us a breather. Okay, the peace of Nicias had been settled in 421, about 10 years after this war began. And that is when Alcibiades happens to enter public life and thinks, hmm, what would be an easy way for me to get power and popularity? I know. Going back to war with Sparta. Woohoo! But anyway, let's go back. Let's get to know the child, Alcibiades. What was Alcibiades like as a kid, as a little tater tot? Grown up in Athens. Well, Plutarch gives us plenty of stories. He was born to a wealthy family, actually the Alcmeonidae, which are a family that goes way, way back in Athens, all the way back to this secret curse that you'll read about in Thucydides. But Pericles is his uncle on his mother's side. His father fought in the Battle of Artemisium and then was killed in a battle in the middle of the 5th century fighting against the uh, the Thebans, the Boeotians. So he is from a long line of warriors and a large and wealthy family. He's so famous to this day. I mean, this guy really is famous. He shows up in a Shakespeare play, Timon of Athens. Or he shows up in the Canterbury Tales. And those are just English-speaking versions. Right? Plato writes about him. Aristophanes mentions him. Plutarch does a, a biography of him as well as another early biographer, Cornelius Nepos. So this guy, he really gets around. Everybody knows Alcibiades. So you too can join this exclusive club of cool people who know Alcibiades after this podcast. He was handsome as a young man. He's so famous, we know his mom's name and his nurse and tutor's name. He's tutored by a Spartan woman, Amicla. You would think he would have some of the Spartan virtues, like simplicity of life. Nope, doesn't get that one. He wears his hair long. And he talks with a lisp, but that's okay. It just makes him cuter. Not just at three, apparently. People still liked it even later. So then as a boy, what is he known for? So we saw him as a tot. But what is he known for as a boy? I'll give you three of the many stories that Plutarch gives us. He refused to play the flute because it made him look stupid. He didn't like that weird puffing up the face and stuff. So, remember what I said about vanity? He loves rivalry. 
but he always wants to win. So at one point, he's wrestling with another boy. He bites him. Okay? Even in the mostly no-rules wrestling called the Pankration in ancient Greece, there was still the rule no biting, right? I mean, biting is always a rule. Anyway, the boy he's wrestling with is like, hey, don't bite me, that's womanly. And he says, nay, I'm like a lion. Like, okay, great. Uh, last story for his crazy youth, from his crazy youth, he is playing dice and his dice roll from the edge of the street out into the middle of the street and this cart is coming, barreling down the middle of the road. So what does he do? Rather than let it trample over his dice and then see what his dice say, he throws his body in front of the horse, potentially risking death if the horse runs over him and definitely if the cart gets over him. And the horse rears up and the driver turns out of the way and everybody thinks he's crazy and he's huddled over his dice because he wants everyone to see that he, what throw he got. Okay, that's Alcibiades as a kid. We also find out early on in this life that Socrates knew him as a young man and actually tried to help him choose the good. So remember I said Plato wrote about Alcibiades? He didn't just write about Alcibiades in the Symposium, which is probably Plato's most famous dialogue after the Republic. You should read it. Alcibiades shows up in the end. I won't spoil how, but it's awesome. And he tells a lot of the stories that are paralleled here in Plutarch. But another dialogue that Plato wrote early is called the Alcibiades. He actually wrote supposedly two called the Alcibiades, but the Alcibiades Major or the Alcibiades One. The first one is a dialogue in which Socrates and Alcibiades have a conversation about justice. And they don't they don't just start with Socrates being like, hey, well, you know anything about justice, right? Alcibiades is walking in the streets. Socrates stops him. And Alcibiades is like, I think I'm ready to join public life, to be political, you know, to lead the Athenian people. And that's when Socrates leads him on a discussion about, well, then you're going to have to help them understand what's just. Do you yourself know what's just? And basically, he proceeds to prove to Alcibiades that Alcibiades doesn't know anything about justice. And then Alcibiades tries to prove that he knows something about what's expedient or what's useful. And then Socrates proves that he doesn't even know that. So... It's a great dialogue for watching Alcibiades get taken down a peg. And it seems like when Alcibiades was in front of Socrates, he could learn about virtue. He could control his passions enough to want learning and wisdom and truth to be the thing that he sought most. And then Socrates walked out of the room and that all fell apart. So Socrates really hits this middle ground where Socrates is the only true friend when Alcibiades is otherwise surrounded by flatterers. And one of Plutarch's other most famous essays, especially in the Renaissance, this was popular, is how to tell a flatterer from a friend. Because the reality is they're probably going to tell you almost the exact same things. But it's the friend who's going to look out for your good and not just tell you what you want to hear. He even goes on campaign. And Alcibiades is wealthy and Socrates is less so. So Socrates is in the infantry and Alcibiades is in the cavalry. So he's riding a horse. Again, this exact story is what Alcibiades decides to tell everyone in the symposium. Everybody there probably already knew it. But the story that Plutarch wants you to know is that Socrates defended Alcibiades from almost certain death when he fell off his horse. And Alcibiades and Socrates are both able to sort of fight their way out of this isolated position that they find themselves in. And Alcibiades wants Socrates to win the award for valor, but the generals all give it to Alcibiades. 
is interesting because the question is whose action was more valorous? The ultimate gift that Socrates gives Alcibiades is honestly the gift that the Platonic Socrates gives a lot of us, which is the awareness that the greatest gift in our education is to know ourselves, as the Oracle of Delphi says, and this is where the first dialogue of Alcibiades ends. And Plutarch brings that up here when he says Socrates is sort of like cold water and the flatterers are like fire. And Alcibiades is like iron. So you put the iron in the fire and suddenly he becomes malleable and you can shape it and it seems able to do almost anything. But Socrates is the cold water and he brings him back to his senses and lets him see the little little lump of metal that he really is. As Plutarch puts it, how great were his deficiencies and how incomplete his excellence. Speaking of excellence, though, we really are going to see Plutarch is going to waffle back and forth between, it seems like, between arguing with his anecdotes that Alcibiades was awesome and arguing that Alcibiades was the most corrupting influence on the Athenian people that they had ever had. Sorry, like, hmm, which of those? All right. Uh, a few more fun anecdotes are also thrown out here. Uh, Alcibiades passes a school teacher and asks him if he has any Homer on him, which he doesn't necessarily mean here. I'm defending Alcibiades too. Gosh, I'm turning into Plutarch. I don't think this means that he's expecting him necessarily to have a scroll of Homer on him. But the idea there would be how much Homer does he have memorized because he's a school teacher and that's Homer is the text. But this school teacher unwisely says that he has no Homer on him and Alcibiades punches him in the face. That's a theme we're also going to see. I'm pretty sure that Alcibiades punches in the face someone different in just in this life four times. Pretty sure it's four times, but uh, you can read it and keep track for me. Yes, so we went through the Battle of Potidea, and then another fun, last fun, two last fun stories of Alcibiades' youth before we jump into public life, right? Because at this point, he's still just a young man. He's already made a name for himself in Athens just for the things he does. So first is his wife tries to divorce him because he's dallying and wasting time with other things. We'll just leave it at that. Other people and other things. And the... Athenian law requires the divorce proceedings for the wife and husband to meet in person in the agora in order to start the trial. So Alcibiades shows up physically, picks up his wife in the marketplace, and takes her home that way. They apparently lived for the rest of their married life happily together, but she does die shortly thereafter, so that's not really saying much. Also, last thing, to show you what kind of a man Alcibiades was, he buys a beautiful dog, cuts its tail off. Why, you may be wondering. So that the Athenians have something to talk about. He always wants to be talked about. This is the ultimate guy where no press is really bad press. So what draws him into public life? Ah, there's a good question. He's actually, according to Plutarch, he's passing the assembly and he hears applause. He wants to find out what's making the Athenians so excited. And it turns out that somebody is like promising money to the Athenians. So he just walks in right there and he's like, you can have some of my money too. And they're all, they all also applaud. And that his addiction to 
other people's support and adulation of him is a key theme for what kind of a man Alcibiades is. It's not like he was a bad speaker. Demosthenes, about two generations later, considers him one of the good speakers of Athens. We don't have any of his speeches preserved. Thucydides wrote speeches for him, and uh, they're pretty well written and kind of convincing. Particularly his speech to go on the Sicilian expedition, which we already know was a disaster, so we don't need to go through the details of exactly how it was a disaster. But remember, Alcibiades brought us that disaster. So he enters public life, and the other way he enters public life, he's not just entering public life in the normal way by walking into the assembly and speaking to the citizens of Athens. He's not just going to enter public life as a soldier, someone that people see on the battlefield who has great leadership ability like Nicias or Pericles. He's also going to enter the public mind and life by being an Olympic victor. But he's also kind of the laziest Olympic victor because all he does is raise the horses that then win. He's not riding the chariots. He's not even really training the charioteers. He's just raising the horses. But no one before Alcibiades had ever entered seven chariots into the Olympics and finished first, second, and fourth. And then the famous tragedian Euripides, yes, that Euripides, whose plays we still have, wrote him a victory ode that Plutarch still had in front of him. We don't have it anymore. It doesn't survive. But it apparently says... That the victory, it, it's almost like one of those backhanded compliments where he's like, wow, the, what's the best kind of victory? The victory where you return home and you're not even tired. Yeah, that was your victory, Alcibiades. I.e., you didn't do any of the work. Oh, right. So he is wildly popular because the Olympics, as you can imagine, Olympic victors are courted and praised and fawned over by everyone. So this means that he is beginning also to make public enemies, as we always see in Athens. You can never rise very high before someone doesn't like you. Themistocles versus Aristides, Cimon and Pericles. Right now we have Nicias and Alcibiades. You knew that was coming. And so we get a little bit more of the backstory that we talked about in the life of Nicias, where Nicias and Alcibiades and this third guy, Phaeax, are the most politically important and they're the three most politically powerful. And then there's this guy who gets up and talks to the people. He's called Hyperbolus. And Plutarch describes him as base but insensitive to the opinion of the crowd. In case you think that that's a good thing, Plutarch does not agree with you. He says, some might call this courage, the ability to totally ignore what everybody else thinks, but he thinks it's actually shamelessness and folly. So it can look like courage, but it's actually shamelessness. So the shameless hyperbolist is actually the last guy targeted for ostracism. And we talked about in the life of Nicias how the Athenians essentially wake up the next day and are like, man, that's a bad idea. If we're just going to like ostracize horrible people who barely matter to us anyway, The whole point was to prevent tyranny, so he becomes the last guy ostracized ever. So Alcibiades has already entered public life, and you're like, hey, where's the piece of Nicias? Don't worry, it just happened. So the piece of Nicias, 421 BC, 10 years into the Peloponnesian War, we have everyone talking about Nicias. They even named a piece after him. So Alcibiades is rather envious. So he really spends the next several years getting together allies against Sparta. So Alcibiades has to find a way to get back 
to war with Sparta. He finds that he can take the Spartan enemies in the Peloponnesus, the regions of Elea and Argos and Mantinea, and turn them against Sparta or Spartan hegemony or influence. And he does this successfully. He's even trying to convince them to act more and more like Athens. So he tells Argos, hey, if you build long walls to the sea, you'll be directly connected to the sea, and then we can be even more best friends. Yeah. Alcibiades is even encouraging the Athenians to change or alter from Pericles' tactics. Pericles' tactics were never take the Spartans on on land, only fight the Spartans from the sea. If we control the sea, they control the land, there's no major damage they can do to us, but we can do major damage to them. So that's Alcibiades as a general, but the problem is, Everybody doesn't just see him as a general. They also see how he lives. And man, does his reputation start to cut against him. He is frequently drunk, spends his money wildly, dresses elegantly, maybe is not strong enough a word, like a fop. There we go. And he even decorates his shield. Well, first he makes his shield golden and then decorates it with a picture of Cupid. That's weird. Remember when way back when we did the life of Aristides, he was known not just as being just, but that there was an Aeschylus play at the time called The Seven Against Thebes, where a character came out who had nothing on his shield. And the reason he had nothing on his shield because he would rather be than seem heroic or brave or whatever. And the thunderbolt or the lion or whatever image you're going to put on your shield isn't going to make that much of a difference. It's more seeming than being. By the way, Cupid or Eros didn't have a bow. He was armed with a thunderbolt, so maybe that's scary. And Aristophanes, okay, Aeschylus is dead, but Aristophanes, the comic poet, does mock him pretty mercilessly in the frogs in the voice of the character of Aeschylus. So the frogs is written about a year before the Peloponnesian War ended, although Aristophanes didn't know that. And both Aeschylus and Euripides, the famous tragedians, are dead. And so Dionysus goes down to the underworld to bring back the one that's going to help Athens the most. And so essentially, Aeschylus and Euripides have a poetry battle down in Hades to decide which one of them is going to give the best advice to the Athenians when they come back. Won't ruin it for you as to who comes back, but it's fun. And while they're down there in that poetry battle, Aeschylus is basically telling them, look, you trusted this. You reared a lion in the polis. So once you have a lion in the polis, even though it's not a good place to have a lion, you're going to have to deal with the fact that you raised this lion. Okay? Thanks, Aristophanes. Good advice. Alcibiades is also beginning to do more and more things that creep the people out and make them think that he's heading towards a tyranny. So he has all kinds of paintings of himself done again and again. He's responsible for another major Athenian disaster, which both Plutarch, Plutarch explicitly lays at his feet and Thucydides probably implies in book five. In the summer of 416 BC, the Athenians take an island that has wanted to claim neutrality for the entire war. They surround it with their navy and they say, pick a side. And the Melians say, nope, we can't pick a side because that's what being neutral means, you might not understand. 
And the Athenians are like, you have to pick a side because we're stronger. And the Melians are like, mm, don't know if you're stronger means we have to. And they're like, let look, real politics, okay? The strong do what they will. The weak suffer what they must. Learn this lesson. And so they besiege Milos. And when Milos finally gives up, they kill all the men and they sell the women and children into slavery. So one of those captives, Alcibiades, takes on as like a mistress and he has a son by her. This is supposed to be like a consolation, I guess, for this poor woman, but doesn't sound all that great. So while all this is going on, the Melians are being destroyed literally to the last man. And their women and children are sold into slavery. Mostly Alcibiades, when he's in the city, is getting paintings done of himself. So cool. And Timon, from the Shakespeare play Timon of Athens, makes a brief appearance here to tell Alcibiades that he's glad to see him growing up because soon he'll be big enough to ruin the entire city. Ha. Okay. And then people weren't sure what to say about Timon's statement. Was he right? Wrong? Am I indifferent? And then we get to Sicily. I can do this in a compressed way because we already did this for the life of Nicias. But remember that it's Alcibiades' idea and Alcibiades is getting everybody fired up to go take Sicily. And Sicily psh, Sicily will probably be just the beginning, you know? It's going to be awesome, guys. We're just going to control the whole Western Mediterranean. Our empire isn't even big enough yet. But the night before the Sicilian expedition leaves, these statues of Hermes that exist at every crossroads in the whole city, all except one of them, are defaced. And so there's another problem, though, that Alcibiades is also brought to trial for, then we didn't mention this as much in the life of Nicias, that is the Eleusinian Mysteries. Eleusis is a little town, maybe four or five miles northwest of Athens, where a cult grows up to Demeter and Persephone, right? So the goddess of grain and the harvest and her daughter, Persephone or Proserpina, who famously goes to the underworld in the myth for six months and then comes back because Hades steals her. So there's a, a way, a mystery cult in which you can be initiated. But if you are a member of the mystery cult, if you have been initiated into that mystery cult, you're sworn to secrecy about those mysteries. So Aeschylus was actually famously put on trial for maybe giving away what happened in the mysteries, but he was acquitted in that trial because he claimed that he had never been an initiate, and so he had no way of knowing what went on in the mysteries. But Alcibiades is blamed for much worse. He's blamed for making fun of the rituals involved in the mysteries, and he is an initiate, so he can't really make the same claim that Aeschylus did. So there's two counts of sacrilege right now against him. The first is the sacrilege of defacing statues of Hermes, and the second is the sacrilege of making fun of the Eleusinian mysteries. So once he's done both of those things, and people are pretty sure, it just so happens that he's also elected to be one of the three generals to go for Sicily, and they set off. That doesn't mean that the gears of justice are not in play, though, while he's gone. So while they reach Italy and even get all the way to Catana, which is just north of Syracuse, we get the Earlier charges get combined. Thucydides gives us none of the informers, and the testimony is wildly inconsistent. But 
Either way, clearly Athens is on the rampage to find some sort of scapegoat for this problem. The one Hermes that was not harmed is near this guy's house named Andosides. And he asks for immunity if he gives a confession. And so his confession basically names a bunch of names and those people are put to death and he is not. And it still doesn't end things because people still want to get Alcibiades back. They want to bring him back for trial. So they send the official state trireme, named after the island of Salamis, to go get him. And they encourage him, they encourage the men sent to get him to do so gently and stealthily. Because the last thing they want to do is ruin the Sicilian expedition by taking away one of its main leaders, which, by the way, is 100% what they do. So not that it would have necessarily gone well if Nicias and Alcibiades had always been fighting about what to do, but they didn't even get to do that for very long. So once it ends up being Nicias and Lamachus, what does Alcibiades do? Does he go back to Athens and stand trial and be put to death? No, of course not, because then we'd be at the end of the life. Alcibiades flees, right? He immediately runs away, and this is really the high point where we see Alcibiades show his true colors for the first time. When Alcibiades is in trouble, what does he do? Does he sit in prison and wait for the Athenians to kill him? No, he's not Socrates. He's Socrates' student. He runs away. So he escapes, and he's got to figure out where to go. Uh, His property's confiscated. All the priests and priestesses are told to curse his name. One priestess refuses, and she says... That a priestess's job is to pray and bless, not curse. That's kind of cool. So Alcibiades goes to Sparta because obviously if Athens is at war with Sparta and Athens is at war with you, then the enemy of my enemy is my friend. He would go to Argos, but Argos is too allied with the Athenians. So he decides to go to Sparta. Problem is he ruins a lot of things for himself almost immediately. He also ruins a lot of things for Athens. He gives two pieces of advice that are really key. One, he tells them to send Gylippus right away. So maybe they were already going to send Guy Lippis, but he's like, nope, nope, nope. You need to send him ASAP. He's going to make the difference. He kind of does, but see the life of Nicias for that. The other thing he tells the king of Sparta to do is he tells them the strategic location in Attica that if the Spartans kept a permanent garrison there, they could prevent the Athenians from ever being able to use their lands throughout the year to grow food which means the Athenians would be entirely dependent on imported food from elsewhere, from places like Sicily. Oh, strategic advantage. And the Black Sea, which are there are a lot of poleis that have excess grain and can export it. They can also get it from Cyprus and Egypt. So they have those places, and now Athens will be forced, if the Spartans follow Alcibiades' advice, which they do, and they go and fortify Decalea, is the name of that area, with a garrison. Once Alcibiades arrives in Sparta, I mean, he's an Olympic victor, and therefore he is internationally famous. So people already know him. He's publicly and privately admired in Sparta. And yet, and yet, he also no longer acts like an Athenian. The guy with the long, trailing purple robes, nope, doesn't dress that way anymore, grows his hair long, takes cold baths, eats the coarse bread, and drinks the black broth that the Spartans are famous for. In Sparta, he looks and acts like a Spartan. And this is where Plutarch compares him to a chameleon, where he says he could seem not just black or white or change colors, he could seem good or bad at will. He could imitate virtue 
without ever having the virtues. So in Sparta, simplicity and severity. So did Alcibiades have it. In Ionia, ease, pleasure, enjoyment. That's what he was good at when he was in Ionia. When he was with the Thracians, they were good at deep drinking. He could do that. He could match them drink for drink. In Thessaly, they could all ride horses. He could ride horses with the best of them, as we know. So on the outside, it seemed like he was a true, quote, son of Lycurgus, but the same weak-willed man hid on the inside. Speaking of weak wills, he's not just popular. He manages to seduce the queen of one of the kings of King Aegis II, and the queen gets pregnant with Alcibiades' son, and she doesn't really deny it. And Aegis II was away during this time, and so it becomes really impossible for anyone to fake this as like, oh yeah, it's actually Aegis' son. Nope, it's not. So... That means he's persona non grata in Sparta. So Alcibiades is continuing to try to help the Spartans aid different Ionian islands. But Aegis is annoyed, to say the least, and the other Spartans grow jealous. Maybe even Alcibiades is silly and walks around saying that he's going to have a Spartan king for a son. Okay, not a good thing to brag about. Anyway, so he's got to leave. And he pretty much sees the writing on the wall before they do... So he runs away. Well, where do you run now? Athens hates you. Sparta hates you. Ah, Persia, the person who hates both Athens and Sparta. Good. All right. So he runs away to a satrap. Remember, the satraps are the smaller rulers under the king of kings who's far away in Susa or Persepolis. He runs away to the satrap Tissaphernes. Tissaphernes is going to be important to the next three lives or so because he's kind of a conniving leader himself. Difficult to be trusted. He can sometimes do things for you, but you're never quite sure what his motivation is. It always seems like he's looking out for himself. But the Athenians are actually starting to feel really bad about having driven Alcibiades away. And we remember that in the life of Pericles, Pericles had spent so much of his uh, military career before the Peloponnesian War broke out, fighting and winning the island of Samos as a naval base for the Athenians. So Athens is a mess right now. And politically, there's two or three different factions that are fighting for power. But essentially, to simplify it, it's oligarchs, so a few people in charge. We're talking like 400, so that's a few. And the democracy, which is still the same. Gather 6,000 to 10,000 citizens and have them all vote on a subject after listening to speeches during the day. Those are really your two options. And Athens is very torn because those who favor the oligarchy are also going to favor ending the war quickly with Sparta by coming to terms. And those who favor the democracy want to fight the war because it gives the uh, it gives so many advantages to the Athenians to run their empire and to fight Sparta because of all the spoils and riches that come with war. So, most of the Athenian navy is at the island of Samos and they're working constantly in the Aegean Sea to keep the allies suppressed, which is also probably keeping a nice constant flow of money and ships and supplies. I mean, if you do something like what they do to Milos more than once, which they do more than once, where you kill all the men and sell the women and children into slavery, I'm sure that's a quick way or a nice, an effective way, I'll say, to make a quick drachma. So 
Alcibiades begins to communicate with Athens again, even though he's in Persia, because he thinks, well, always got to set up for my next thing. I mean, what if things go south in Persia? Seriously, that's probably what he's thinking. Plutarch didn't say that. but uh, And that's when the first revolution occurs in Athens. So now you sort of have Samos becomes this island where the democracy is sort of living in exile. And then Athens has an oligarchy that's going to try to get closer to Sparta, which is not really in Alcibiades' best interest anymore because Sparta doesn't like him. So what does Alcibiades do? He goes to Persia. He tells Tissaphernes to help both Athens and Sparta, but never with a decisive amount of money because it'll make them easy prey for the Persians when they do want to do something. Mm -hmm. That's also good advice. Why does Alcibiades give good advice to his enemies? I don't know. I mean, I do know, but we'll, we'll get there. So the oligarchy is overthrown and democracy is restored in Athens around 411. The city actually orders Alcibiades to return home, but instead he takes some of the ships from Samos and he wants to do even more for Athens. So he hears of a Spartan fleet going up to take the Hellespont. That's that narrow strait that connects to the, really to the Sea of Marmara and then to the Bosporus and then to the Black Sea. But those two narrow straits, the Hellespont is the one that's closer to the Aegean and the Bosporus is the one that's closer to the Black Sea. Just remember Bosporus, Black Sea. He hears about a Spartan fleet that's going to the Hellespont. If the Athenians lose control of the Hellespont, they will lose access to trading with any of the poleis that would be willing to sell them grain. This is really important because the Spartans now prevent the Athenians from growing their own food by having a permanent garrison in Decalea. So he hears of the Spartan fleet coming and he goes to the battle and he sort of arrives and everybody's like, okay, so whose side is he fighting on? There's Persians here, there's Spartans here, and there's Athenians here. And nobody's really sure. But he flies the Athenian colors and attacks Spartan ships. So, okay, I guess that became clear. Man, that was an awkward entrance. The Athenians win. They capture 30 ships. They set up a a trophy. And Alcibiades wants to go back to Tissaphernes and be like, hey, we're friends now, right? Because I gave you that good advice and such. And Tissaphernes throws him in prison. Okay, now it's clear that Persia doesn't like it. They liked him at first. So Alcibiades is a little confused. But it seems that Tissaphernes, at least according to Plutarch, needs to prove to the Persian king that he's not being too... He's not favoring one side or the other too much. So the Spartans have been sort of poisoning the well with the Persian king and saying, hey, Tissaphernes is not playing fair. Tissaphernes, ha, okay, bad pun. Alcibiades, of course, because he can always do this, escapes, steals a horse, and rides to the coast. He then sails away and learns where the Spartans are next. So he was ordered home in 411. This is several years later. He's still not come home. I think he finally gets home in like 409. He finds out where the Spartans are again, and it's near the Hellespont. And he sails there, and he gets the Spartans to fight, and he wins again. He even takes over and sacks a city, killing all the Spartans or Peloponnesians, which would be Spartans and their allies, in it. So then he turns on Persia and attacks another satrap who's really... The satrap just south of Tissaphernes' satrap is Pharnabazus, and he has thrown more of his weight behind Sparta because he really sees that Sparta needs it and is going to make the difference in this war. Alcibiades, by the way, at this point is totally undefeated. Any engagement that he has been involved in, he has not lost. Athens is paying attention to that. So 
Alcibiades comes to the aid of another Athenian general, and they manage to beat the navies and armies of Pharnabazus and sack the, some of the land around Central Asia Minor. So then Alcibiades goes back up to Chalcedon because he doesn't just want to clear out the Hellespont. He also wants to make sure the Bosporus stays clear. There's two narrow straits that I talked about earlier. And he wants to make sure that the Spartans stay out of Chalcedon on one side and Byzantium on the other. Both of these cities will eventually be eaten by the large city called Constantinople, which now is called Istanbul. So that Istanbul is on both sides of the Bosporus now, but Byzantium and really old Constantinople was only on the western side and Chalcedon was on the eastern side and the two were just tiny little poleis at this time because Constantine didn't exist for another 700 years. But that just gives you context as to where we're talking about and how strategically important it is. So Alcibiades has this battle for with Pharnabazus for Chalcedon and Byzantium, and he wins both. And, and so he has gotten two strategically important places locked down under Athenian control before he even sails home. And that's when he sails home. Talk about sailing home in a blaze of glory. I mean, they had ordered you home a few years ago, but when you come back, he's bringing the shields and the figureheads of the triremes, decorating his own trireme. He returns like a, uh, Plutarch compares him to a rowdy party guest. His sails are purple. He has people blowing flutes. They are tragic actors in full dress. So Plutarch reports this story and then says, yeah, I don't think it was exactly that way. But Athens knows, though, now that if they left Alcibiades in charge, they could have won Sicily, too. So the same year that they ordered him back is the same year that they found out that Nicias and Demosthenes had died in Sicily. We're now several years after that. It's around 409, I think. So when Alcibiades is back in charge, he refuses to call the Athenians to terms and say, you know, a lot of this is your fault. He could also say just as well, a lot of this is my fault. Nope. Instead, he blames fickle fortune, right? And points to a third scapegoat. So they crown him with gold and they give him basically full powers over land and sea. We don't see this very often in history. So Alcibiades is basically the sole guy in charge of winning this war. And there's a couple things that Plutarch is going to tell us. One is that before he sails off, he restores the Eleusinian mysteries to their former glory. So like I said, Eleusis is outside of Athens. And when the Spartans are right there in Decalea, it's pretty easy for them to roll out and attack anybody who comes outside of the city of Athens. So what Alcibiades wants to do is he wants to challenge the Spartans by marching to Eleusis and challenge the Spartans either to choose. Are you going to come out and we'll have to fight you, in which case I'll beat you, as Alcibiades is thinking, or are you going to stay in and allow us to res resume our worship at Eleusis as we used to where we don't have to do the Eleusinian mysteries in like some sort of other place, right? Like Eleusinian mysteries in exile. And he succeeds. And that's a big win for his personal popularity as well as that charge that was against him, right? So it's almost like he's saying, no, I've turned over a new leaf and either I didn't ever make fun of the Eleusinian mysteries or I'm just trying to clear my name from that one time in my youthful folly 
that I decided to make fun of something that's sacred to all Athenians. So Alcibiades really thinks that he can't lose, and a lot of people really are beginning to think it as well. He is undefeated at this point. Lysander, the Spartan naval commander in charge at this point, won't directly fight him either because he's afraid or because he just knows that Alcibiades is a really good tactician. So once Alcibiades restores Eleusis, he then can sail away. But the problem is he's now facing a Spartan navy that is funded by Persian Derricks. We'll call them Derricks. They're named after Darius or Darius, some people say. So Lysander is able to pay his men very, very well, especially once Cyrus arrives on the scene to replace Tissaphernes as satrap of Phrygia. So Alcibiades is constantly having to go around, essentially, to the other allied islands and demand that they pay the amount that they are promised to or are supposed to. And this takes time, and it takes him away from the main navy in Samos. So one of those times, he leaves his second-in-command, Antiochus, within range of Lysander with the explicit command, do not engage with Lysander, whatever you do. And Antiochus says, yes, sir. And then Alcibiades goes off to get money. And what does Antiochus do? He supposedly just wants like a little skirmish, but the little skirmish turns into a big battle in which Antiochus not only loses, but dies, and Lysander sets up a trophy. So Alcibiades is stripped of his command because of the mistake of a second-in-command. And at that point, Alcibiades just loses it, and it's like, fine. If Athens doesn't want me to win this war for them, I'm going off by myself. He takes a bunch of Thracian mercenaries and kind of just goes off. He builds a fortress in Thrace at the north of the Aegean Sea. And because he has no more friends, he he's burned his bridges in Persia. He knows that he can't go to Cyrus, who's allied himself with the Spartans. Pharnabazus, same thing. Tissaphernes is gone, so he can't go back to him. Sparta and Athens both now have reasons to dislike him. He can't even have power in Athens. So the generals who replace him, though, are going up to the the main focus now is cutting off the Black Sea again. So Lysander has gone up to the Hellespont and is camping on one side or the other, and that's where the other, the rest of the Athenian navy goes. But the Athenian navy goes up there to a place called Aegospotami, and Alcibiades rolls down and gives them the advice. He's like, hey, you're too far away from a city to be easily resupplied, and you need to make sure that you're watching Lysander. He's tricky. You don't know what he's going to do. And the generals basically are like, we're the generals, and you're not anymore, so ha, huh? and they totally ignore him. And Aegospotami is the famous last battle of this entire war. So we'll tell it in the life of Lysander because it's one of the only things that makes Lysander famous. But Lysander manages to utterly destroy the Athenian navy in this battle. I mean, like eight ships, I think, escape. So, and that's the whole Athenian navy. And Athens is just hard up for money now. The Spartans, the Persians have totally shifted to giving their money to the Spartans now. And so Athens knows that it's out of options. So, as Athens comes to a close, the Athens loses their navy, and with it, they lose their freedom. Lysander still takes a while to clean up the rest of the Aegean and to roll into Athens and besiege them and starve them out and make them give up. But once they give up, he tears down the walls that they've had since Themistocles, 
he puts in a a ruling body of 30 men who are mostly Athenians, but they're the Athenians that had the Spartan leanings the whole time anyway. And they rule like tyrants with a Spartan army garrisoned inside of the Athenian walls. So Alcibiades at this point can't come back to Athens and doesn't want to go back to Sparta. He'd be competing with Lysander at this point anyway. And so he really just stays up in Thrace and maybe he's living in Phrygia. Nobody's quite sure of exactly how he meets his end, but it seems like the Spartans and the Persians both decide, all right, this guy's dangerous. We don't like him. He's done enough harm already. So let's find a way to kill him. And we're told two different stories. One is, and this is the one with the painting that I have in the show notes, that he's living with this woman named Timandra, whose name means the worth of a man or the honor of a man, which is interesting in and of itself. But there, a party is sent to kill him, but they don't enter his hut. They light his hut on fire. He comes rolling out with a sword in his hand and they shoot him from afar. This is the way they know they have to take on Alcibiades the undefeated. Because if they had just challenged him to combat or given him any time to think about it, they're just afraid. And they know they wanted to kill him dead. And then Tamandra, after everyone had left, gives Alcibiades as honorable a burial as she can. There is an alternative story, though. And Plutarch leaves us with that one, which is interesting because it's the last story echoing in our heads. And that story is that he stole a girl from a well-known family, and her brothers are the ones that surround the hut, light it on fire, and kill Alcibiades, essentially, in the same way as I described. So, that is, he runs out, and they throw javelins and spears. So, that's the end of Alcibiades, and it's about as depressing as the end of Athens. Wow, I think I mentioned earlier that we get the politicians that we deserve, and Athens had made a lot of dumb decisions as a democracy, but there is a way in which Alcibiades is the leader that they chose and came back to again and again and again, in spite of how bad he was for them. We all know a person like Alcibiades. Hopefully none of us are an Alcibiades, but somebody who's just good at everything and yet has so little virtue. And so there's a difference between skill or just generic excellence and actual virtue. I think that's one of the big lessons here with Alcibiades is that someone can be impressive. Let's be real. A lot of our politicians look this way. They have so many skills, so many things they are good at. And yet, they are serving themselves first and foremost and really would be fine changing sides if they could get away with it like Alcibiades could. Man, did Alcibiades ever get away with it. So, On that note, I'll give you a brief overview of the next few months. We're going to do Lysander, whose name also means destroyer of men, which is cool, because he definitely destroys Athens. So we'll see the sunset in slow motion on Athens. And then we'll see the rise of Sparta over the next two lives, so Lysander and Agesilaus. But I think, I'm not sure if I'm going to do Agesilaus first or Pelopidas, because Sparta has a very small heyday for about 50 years. And then Thebes rises and falls even faster. And then we're already accelerating rapidly towards Macedon. There is not a life of Philip, but we'll be at the life of Alexander in season three after we finish Lysander, Agesilaus, and Pelopidas. So uh, Alcibiades is really our last Athenian in this rise and fall of the Greek polis, which is really what I'm calling season three. 
because it's not just the rise and fall of Athens. It covers the first rise and fall of Athens and then another rise and fall of Sparta and then the brief flash in the pan known as the Theban hegemony. At any rate, thanks again for the download. Thanks for listening. I hope that all these lives are linking together in a way where you're getting a clearer picture of virtue, a clearer picture of the political and historical situation that the ancients went through, and a better way to guide your own life, because that's the point after all, is to open Plutarch's lives and to allow his lives affect yours. (laughs) 